Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I don't really want to say much in this introduction because I don't want to give away any of the narrative here, but this is a conversation with a patron of the show, Jack Huber, who interviewed me about the time that I almost became a Catholic. He himself is a convert to Roman Catholicism. Some of you are thinking, how in the hell could you ever have gotten close to becoming a Catholic? Others of you are thinking, yeah, I could see that. And actually, I'm kind of interested myself. I'm sure we have a large range of sort of beginning stances and it'll be very interesting to hear from you guys about what you think about this episode so without giving anything away let's just get into it Dan, over the course of your podcast episodes, I've listened to not all of them, but um, um, a lot of them, you've kind of um, alluded to your experiences of uh, engagement, interest, uh, appeal to various aspects of the Catholic faith. And leading up to uh, kind of a discernment process of, of actually uh, converting and joining the Catholic Church. So I, I, I've, I've kind of um, – I feel like I know a lot about that from 
various segments of your episodes, but why don't we just kind of start from the beginning and talk us through your personal history of faith, especially as it relates to the Catholic faith? Yeah. I mean, just to be just to be abundantly clear, I did not make the move to convert to Catholicism, right. but I got very close and I would have, and we'll, we'll get to that point. Mm. Chance perhaps kept me from, from doing that at, at one particular point um, mm. or Providence, whichever. Uh, sure. So, you know, listeners know probably plenty about my moderate evangelical upbringing, but let's just talk about the role, like how I thought of Catholics. I would think yeah. I didn't really have any Catholic friends growing up. I loosely got an idea that Catholics were not the same as Christians. You know, maybe hearing some adults occasionally say like, oh, well, are they Catholic or are they Christian? And then imbibing that. Right. But that didn't last all that long. I would say I was thinking about this last night. I would imagine that by junior high, I knew that Catholics were Christians. I didn't have any particular. I probably didn't understand why they worshipped Mary or whatever, quote unquote, whatever little right. uh, phrases I had been given right. by uh, sort of Catholic skeptic evangelicals. But I would have thought, yeah, they're, yeah, they're Christians. And, and it wasn't, but it wasn't really until high school that I had any kind of real interaction with any Catholic thought or writings or anything like that. I, okay. I never, I never went, you know, we probably, we had a house cleaner who was uh, an immigrant from Mexico for off and on most of my childhood. Her name was Marta, and she might have been Catholic, but she also might have been like Pentecostal. I don't know. She she might have also been evangelical, basically. Mm. Uh, and I, it never came up. I, I was, you know, I didn't have the sense to ask our house cleaner about <laughs> right. her faith. I would be far more interested now than I was then, probably. Right. But yeah, so I don't I don't think really not until high school did did I have really many concepts at all. Mm. Do you have any memories of things you saw or or do you remember what your church taught you about the Catholic faith anything like that? It's very hard for me to separate out what I learned at church versus what I learned at Christian school. Right. Uh, and I was in Christian school starting in 6th grade. I went to public school before then. Okay. You know, actually, I did learn a little bit in in public school because in fourth grade, at least at that time, you would do California history growing up in California, and the missions are a a big part of California history. And we would go on right. field trips to the actual missions, the ones that we could drive to from San Jose, which there was right. two or three. And so I guess I knew that they were Catholic, and I knew that they were Christian. Uh, mm. And I, you know... So maybe I had some questions around that. I don't remember now. Um, But that's what I – that would have been probably like my primary exposure would have been in learning. And we did it. Everyone does a missions project in fourth grade. And so (laughs) pick one and tell the history. I'm sure it was quite whitewashed uh, version (laughs) of the history. Now now I know a little bit more. So that would have probably been it. I I don't remember ever going to a Catholic church. I didn't know – uh, you know, like college watching like Scorsese films and stuff, you know, then there's like this Catholic element. I, I don't think I had any of that yet um, okay. at that age. Okay. Just briefly, I'll just say I, I, I was raised fundamentalist in the 80s and w- was given a very clear message that 
Catholics were something different and yeah. uh, to be sus- suspicious. But I just remember being maybe partly that, but also just kind of curious. Like, what's the, that crucifix? Why do they have Jesus' body on there? And yeah. what's the big deal with Mary? You know, she seems like a nice enough gal, but why is she such a big deal? <laughs> you know, so totally. Like I, I resonate with that. I resonate with that. Right? Yeah. Yeah, to the extent that I was curious about that stuff. It's interesting, though, that my – like what we might call theological questions in terms of like wonderings about specifically religious things, I don't don't know. That might not have really got going for me until – I don't think it really got going for me until the end of high school. I was interested in music. I wanted to be like a punk rocker or I was like – where are where are ska bands from? You know, like that was yeah, yeah. what I was interested in. And then around right. senior year, we took basically like an apologetics course at my Christian high school. And I started reading some more challenging stuff, which we'll probably get get to shortly. And that's when that part of my yeah. brain, I very quickly decided to be a philosophy major. That there wasn't like okay. a lot of buildup to that. It was like one teacher was like, probably you'd be good at this, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so so high school. Um, we're in high school, and yeah. you talk about that. So in you high school, Endo. I read Endo, Shusaku Endo. He mm-hmm. is was a Japanese Catholic, mostly novelist, although he also wrote a like really liberal historical Jesus book and a, a few other things. But mostly mm-hmm. he wrote novels and short stories. And he wrote the book Silence, which uh, yep. Scorsese turned into a film recently. I saw with, that. Yeah, yeah, with Andrew uh, Garfield and Adam Driver. Right. I've seen it twice. I've read the book twice. So I read it first in high school and I read it again, I think, when I was on tour in my 20s. And nice. I also read a book of his called The Samurai, which um, you know is a different story. It actually takes place on in like sort of colonial America um, in the West. But then I also read... Uh, I think it does. I might be mixing this up. And then I also read The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene, senior year of high school. Oh, yeah, okay. The Whiskey Priest. So this um, (laughs) – that's his name in the book. He's an alcoholic but repentant kind of up priest sinner. Yeah. Uh, And so those books were kind of my intro to a Catholic way of thinking. And I I have to say I found it – I was totally absorbed in it. I was – I was very intrigued. Silence is, you know, for people who haven't read it or seen the film, uh, right. it's it's basically a, a – I don't want to give too much away. There, there's not a lot you can say without kind of ruining the plot. But it's about these Portuguese Jesuit missionaries. Mm. I think they're Jesuit. They come yep. over to Japan while while Japan is heavily persecuting Christians yep. and they have a crisis of faith. We'll just say that. Uh, yep. It's a it's a book with a lot of gray area, very little black and white, very few answers for the very good questions that it gives. So I guess for right, my right. personality, this was about the best possible introduction to c- Catholic thinking that could have existed. I was like, oh, Catholics are like super mm. nuanced and and like dealing with doubt and okay. like wrestling, you know, wrestling with these deep questions. Of, yeah. God's voice or silence, action, inaction, uh, all the senseless violence and persecution. And and so I was – yeah, I, I wasn't entertaining any thoughts of being Catholic, but I was I was intrigued at that point. That kind of thinking was – I guess that's what I'm curious about is what was dis- – what was 
Catholic, what was different and interesting and intriguing to you that was new? So you've said a lot about the, the doubt and the gray area. That's that's interesting. I think that what I – here's how I would say it now. I wouldn't have had the language then. But one thing I was picking up on, I think, is that because of the wide tent of Catholicism and the the way that like just this two billion people or whatever, a billion people, I think it's closer to one, are all Catholics with all these various – you know, modes and even views and, and whatever. And that the orders, the Franciscans and Cistercians and the Jesuits and the Benedictines, that these are kind of like release valves on the, on the big, you know, machine for like the weirdos who don't quite fit. So (laughs) that, I think what I was picking up on was a bit of that, that like, Oh, there could be this like Catholic Japanese guy who actually thinks that some aspects of Catholicism are fundamentally incompatible with Japanese thought. That's one of the things that Endo believed. Mm. Uh, And people have Mm -hmm. either loved him for that or or criticized him for that. But that kind of idea that he was still Catholic, even though he he thought that, like, fundamentally I actually can't buy into all this stuff. My guess is that now, that 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 kind of – ability to hold tension was really appealing to me. Uh, and okay. of course I wouldn't have been able to call it that then, but I think that was what it was. Good right. question. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. And similar, I, I, um, the more I have over time consumed Catholic movies or read Catholic works that too has surfaced as kind of a, a theme of, really looking at our life and honoring our our own history and our questions and that there's there sometimes are gray areas and moral dilemmas that are not always entirely clear and how does grace kind of work through that process so, uh, can, so you give it, can you think of any examples in specifically catholic stuff yeah i'm just i'm just thinking of a movie that i recently saw called calvary um, I think it's an Irish film, or at least it's set in Ireland um, about a priest. One of my favorite movies. Oh, you've seen it? Oh, it was Calvary? my favorite film of that year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Calvary, um, about the priest and kind of the caring for his parish, his community, and all of the people who are who make it up, who are very imperfect people, and he loves and cares for them in their imperfection, while also kind of confronting possibly his own uh, doom um, as his as his life has been threatened. Um, and so kind of deals with issues of forgiveness, and what does that mean? And ultimately, that kind of arises at the end of the movie. Yeah, definitely Silence. Also, Agnes of God is one of my favorite Catholic movies. And this is something I saw. It came out in the early 80s. I was a a kid, and it's about a nun who, in a a cloistered convent in Canada, who becomes pregnant, and there's the baby is born, and the baby is murdered. And so there's a murder investigation by a woman who is a psychiatrist. And so it's just a fascinating kind of juxtaposition between faith 
and science and skepticism in trying to solve this murder. And how could this young woman, Agnes, kind of endure and make sense of this experience? So again, same kind of meditation on doubt and tragedy and faith sustaining you. Um, another good wow. one is Philomena. Have you seen Philomena? I have not seen Philomena. It is, I guess it was on my list and then I, I kind of softened on it, but now I, I'm thinking you're going to give me a reason to see it. <laughs> um, similar story about powerful story, at least to me, about a woman who was separated from her child at birth in a um, orphanage in Ireland and the baby was uh, basically adopted by Americans and she stayed in Ireland and was basically wondering what happened to her, her child as she grew up and lived her life. And so the movie is about kind of searching for this child with the aid of a journalist who also plays the role of the skeptic who's in a crisis of faith. So crisis of faith is um, kind of a resonant theme in Catholic media I've seen. Yeah, I think it's probably not like what I'm describing is more, and I think you are too, films, stories that come out of a Catholic mindset as opposed to like, oh, Catholics are okay with doubt and Protestants are like, it's not that clean, right, right, right. but right, it's the right. kind of art and stuff that tends to get made um, yeah. I think was, yeah, that was my first hook in to the whole thing. Interesting. So kind of under the heading of kind of you're, you're growing up, you're in high school and now you're going to college. What I'm seeing here is kind of a little bits of attraction. Talk to us about your college experiences. Yeah. A few things happened in college. Um, probably the very first thing is my first quarter of undergrad as a philosophy major. I took philosophy, you know, 101, or I think it might have actually been called 231, but it was basically the intro to philosophy class that basically everybody had to take some version of this. There was a couple things you could take, but I had, it was, it was uh, Professor Walker, Ken Walker, and he was a former, I think he was minor leagues. Maybe he played a little in the majors, like a Dodgers pitcher. So we had this little baseball connection his wife was a Catholic. At the time, I don't think he considered himself a Catholic, but he did go on to basically be a practicing Catholic later in later years. And he is the best professor I ever had in college, uh, just easily my favorite, a perfect way to start out my philosophy tenure. He's the reason I, I almost changed at one point to English from philosophy. I took an ethics class with him that final quarter before I switched over and I decided not to switch. So he's he was formative, and he had a Catholic sensibility to him. Okay. Uh, he kept his cards very close to the chest, almost mm. comically so, but I knew that. Another mm -hmm. thing that happened is I read Thomas Merton, The Seven-Story Mountain. I okay. read G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy, mm. and I read Dorothy Day's uh, autobiography, The Long Loneliness, in those mm -hmm. first couple years of college. Probably I've cooled on Chesterton, even though he's such a funny writer. I've cooled a little bit on his arguments compared to some of the others. That kind of mid-century modernist meta-narratives mm -hmm. versus each other and Christianity has the best one. I'm a little less drawn to that now, but mm -hmm. it was very intellectually 
I think a, a lot of college age evangelicals read a bunch of C.S. Lewis and then like tier two is you get to Chesterton. <laughs> and mm. so I definitely considered myself as tier two. But then also I started going to uh, noon mass on weekdays. I had mm. a hard time finding a Protestant church that I connected with in my little it's a pretty small college town, not a ton of churches to choose from. I later found out that there was one that I really would have liked, but nobody told me about it or I wasn't listening if they did. So I would go to the old Mission Cathedral, the, the Mission Church in San Luis Obispo, California. It held probably three or 400 people. It was pretty small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would be about 25 people in there at noon on a weekday. And, and noon – was very important because I was a college student and I did not wake up early. I still don't. I mean, I, now I wake up early because of my son, but I wouldn't choose to. And so I could go many quarters. There would be a day where I had class at one or something. So I would go to the noon mass, take Mm. the bus to school or ride my bike, whatever, and then have my 1 PM class. And that was really my main church experience during college. I didn't take the Eucharist. I just, I loved the 20 to 25 minute and still do to this day. Yeah. Weekday mass is my favorite church service in the world. It's just, it's just the meat only, you know, no yeah. fat to trim. Uh, <laughs> I don't particularly like singing in church that much. There's basically very little singing or none. Um, you, you do the prayers of the people every time, you know, you remember the poor and the sick. Uh, now, you know, the Eucharist is a part of that. For me, which we can get in, we should get into why I do take the Eucharist at mm. Mass, which would make a lot of Catholics very uneasy. But so that's a part of it now that wasn't yet for me, although I think I still found it valuable. I would just stay in the pew and, and pray basically uh, mm-hmm. during the Eucharist. And I just loved the economy of it. I loved the short little homily giving me something to think about. Yep. And I think I loved the the beauty and the ritual. And I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I'd like to hear you speak to this actually as a Catholic, like. Do you even have words for – is there a word – there's probably a word in German for the feeling you get when you go into the cathedral that reminds you of what goes on during mass? I, you know what I'm saying? Do you have that? Yeah. Um, so for me, I find the mass just extraordinarily beautiful. I've been to mass a couple times in the past. These were some of my early – curiosity experiences where I was having my own kind of crisis of faith and was kind of lost and was looking for a a faith expression. And so when I was younger, I would go to mass a few times and that was kind of interesting. I walked the way of St. James a few years ago. And so in Spain, the Camino de Santiago is the the pilgrimage across Spain. And I did that in 2016, July, right on the, uh, actually within two weeks of my divorce being final. So I was there for a lot of different reasons that we can talk about if you like. But one thing I noticed was the mass was, I just found it so beautiful that people from all over the world were there and knew the same knew the format, like it's the same mass experience wherever you are in the world. So there was a a universality to it that was new to me. And I just found it really beautiful. I didn't understand it 
at the time, but I really liked the notion of participating in this sort of global faith community. And there are certain churches that are built in the cruciform structure and adorned in such a way that you enter from the West and you go to the East where Christ the King awaits. And of course, there's the altar where the the Eucharist is, the Mass is celebrated. It, for me, is, it's kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's, It's beautiful. It's kind of between heaven and earth in a way. It's like I'm a little bit closer to God. I'm calmer. I'm more peaceful. The whole thing is really a prayer, a series of prayers. And then, like you said, it's the homily is um, a nice part of it, but it's not all about the sermon. It's about the Eucharist. It's about celebrating Eucharist. And so there are times when I am reduced to tears when receiving So it's an extraordinarily beautiful experience, and some churches are just heavenly spaces. And for me, it's it's emotional. It's it's in that way spiritual. um, It's aesthetic. And Catholic writers will write about the way of beauty, beauty, truth, and goodness. And so my path into the Catholic faith uh, along the way has been through beauty. So my background's not theology, it's it's social science, and I took some philosophy along the way, and I definitely have an analytic and scholarly intellectual approach to faith, and it's not either or, it's and, a very strongly aesthetic and emotional tie as well. I Yeah, I, I resonate with that a lot, and the aesthetics have been a, that's a good way of putting it. A lot of what I'm describing is aesthetic, and you know, I, I spent a little bit of time in Europe, uh, Sherwood, my band, mm. we toured there three times and I went, I, I think one other time during those years, not on tour. And then I went with my wife a couple times and I have spent some time in these cathedrals, in these European yeah. cities. And it's hard to describe, I'm getting kind of chills now talking about it. <laughs> it's hard to describe what these cathedrals represent um there's even a couple on the east coast like in new york and boston that that approach this where there's something so timeless you Mm -hmm. are connected to the past of christian practice in a in a tangible way that you just never will be in a converted warehouse megachurch you know Mm -hmm. uh, sanctuary and for instance my favorite place to go to mass is the big cathedral saint james cathedral and that's where I tend to go if I go to Mass because – if I go on a Sunday, that is. It is like – it's the closest thing to being in one of those European cathedrals. And also being there at St. James reminds me of another thing you, you talked about, which was when you were on the Camino celebrating Mass because it is an internationally enjoyed pilgrimage. Looking around mm. you, everyone knows the beats and um, <laughs> everyone knows what they're doing. And similarly at St. James, you know, that is the most racially diverse experience I have in Seattle. I mean, you know, maybe like going to Pike Place Market or something is technically racially diverse because it's full of tourists and everybody is. But I mean, in terms of like people who live here doing something together, um, I think really, yeah, the, the Black Lives Matter protests that I attended is about the same. But every single Sunday at St. James, there's like. You're getting 
the wafer handed to you by the little Vietnamese woman and the, you know, whatever. And it's just everywhere you look, there is a homeless guy over there. There is like a wealthy lawyer over there. It is a true kingdom of God, sort of like all, all tongues and nations, all socioeconomic statuses in one place. That's something you get with the big tent of Catholicism that you just invariably don't get when people are able to self-select into churches that they prefer, right. uh, which is what you get in Protestantism. And it's a, that's a cost. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I agree. There are other you know, parishes closer to where I live where very racially diverse. Um, we've been there. And I, I like that I can go to any mass anywhere and it's the same thing. And it's not I mean, the individual pastor priest has some uh, latitude in how they do the lights mm-hmm. and the music and things like that. But the mass is the mass, and I can go anywhere, and it's not priest dependent. So I, I've really, really liked that. I don't know about you, but when I go to a mass with like a really bad music experience, <laughs> yeah. it is like it's worse than when it's bad at, at evangelical churches or something like that. It's for me, it's kind of one or the other. I either need, like if I'm going Catholic, I got to have just like hymns and, uh, you know, a pianist or an organist or a choir. Like once they try and do the acoustic guitar and the, like, it's like, Oh gosh, (laughs) I already don't like this, but like, let me tell you, we do this a little better as Protestants, uh, (laughs) you know, stick to stick to what you're good at. Yeah. So we have that point of uh, connection, um, yeah. the beauty of the mass, the beauty of the Catholic faith, I should say, um, Alad. You've had some time in the European cathedrals, um, so you have a sense of what those are. Let's, um, let's, let's go on a little bit and talk about your kind of evolution into contemplative practice. Yeah. So now we're talking about six or seven years ago. So I would have been about 30 and I'm done with all the touring, you know, on tour for eight years there, we, we just didn't really go to church. I mean, there's no way to really do it so that there's kind of a big church blank space, uh, in my twenties. Uh, that is one of the, it's just one of the natural consequences of living in an RV and traveling around and being either on the road or in the studio 10, 11 months out of the year. So, and if I was home, I would just go to church with my, with my folks or whatever. So Around 30, so now I'm living in Seattle in our first house with my wife, and I I start to get into contemplative prayer practice. And this, this has come up in a lot of episodes. But yeah. the book that – I don't remember who recommended it now, but the book that got me into it was this woman, Madame Guyon, and her book is called Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. And okay. I, if, I, if memory serves, it was written in the 19th century – Maybe earlier, she was quite persecuted, um, perhaps for being a, a woman, perhaps for, I don't know, popularizing direct a direct line to God in, in, a, in a phase when the Catholic Church was, you know, more into authority. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the details mm-hmm. around it. But it is the most incredible, simple little book. Oh, you know what? There is a thing before this. I tried to do – this is mm-hmm. in my 20s. Someone gave me Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God, which is basically the Jesus prayer. You just pray, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And and this is like a more of a Russian Orthodox thing. You mm-hmm. do it 
all day in theory. And I read The Way of the Pilgrim, which is an anonymous Russian Orthodox sort of piety book kind of novel, I guess. It's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. It's like a sort of allegorical. And I read, crucially, Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger, the novel where one of the characters has read The Way of the Pilgrim. I'm sure that's why I read The Way of the Pilgrim and is trying to do this Jesus prayer. I really failed with that. And so I kind of waited another five, seven, eight years to try anything contemplative until getting to Madame Guyon. And one of the things that struck me immediately about her book was it was like the second chapter maybe was like, if you can't read, have someone read this chapter to you and it will teach you everything you need to know. So she was like even Hmm. thinking about illiterate peasants. It was like so populist of a thing that really resonated with me. Hmm. My teenage faith was a lot about Jesus and punk rock, which I've talked about occasionally elsewhere. And so I, anytime there's something like that, that really gets me going. And so I learned how to do centering prayer, what I would now call centering prayer through the Madame Guyon book. It's very simple. You just kind of are calming your mind. You're, you're, she gives a couple, you know, tips for that. And you're just kind of inviting Jesus in. And, uh, I, people have different experiences with contemplative prayer. You know, if you guys have listened to my conversations with Sarah Lane Ritchie, you know, that she has tried a lot of these things and experienced nothing. Uh, Mm. And Karen Armstrong talks about in her book, uh, history of God and elsewhere that people have very different talents for mysticism, I think is her phrase. But for me, it, it, clicked right away. It was like the exact thing that I was needed to do that God had been waiting for me to do. And so as soon as I tried, the floodgates sort of opened. And as I've, as I've mentioned many places, a very transformative part of my own story, because it freed me up to acknowledge what I really thought theologically, because I had this experiential love that I could anchor myself in. Um, And it's really the reason that I'm a Christian today. And so that came through a Catholic. And so that was kind of the next, that was the next move was Madame Guyon. Do you, do you know her work or was there an author or a particular person or book that introduced you to contemplative stuff? Yes. Yes. So during this period when I was, when I was separated um, from my first wife and going through that dark period. Um, I was going to a Presbyterian church um, locally and the pastor, wonderful, wonderful pastor, one of the best preachers I've ever, I've ever heard was teaching a course on prayer. And he was teaching, he got to contemplative prayer and he was introducing a book. Um, It came out of a book. I forget the title of it, but it was by Cynthia Bourjol, who is an Episcopal priest. And it kind of comes out of this tradition of monastic contemplative prayer, centering prayer um, of quieting your mind, focusing on a word and just kind of getting to that inner place of, of uh, well, kind of union with God. And I was fascinated with that. I, I'd never heard that, that that was, I didn't, didn't know that was a thing. I wasn't taught to pray that way as a good little evangelical right. boy. Um, <laughs> so, wow, you can, you can pray quietly. You don't have to talk or make your hands into a steeple. 
So it was really fascinating to me. I had really good experiences with it. They say like 20 minutes is kind of the mark that when you first try it, your mind is just extraordinarily busy and how to kind of tame that and keep going I started it with seven minutes. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I had, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty scattered and uh, my, my brain does not slow down easily. So that's where I started. And uh, to me, if I'm at 20, I've been doing it a lot recently and that's good for me. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. But it gets, I mean, so they say it, and I believe it, it, when you continue it, it's like a muscle and you get better at it and the time flies by. And I've had that happen. I know we did a uh, kind of a thread on, on um, prayer in the group and we all kind of shared our prayer experiences. I've always had good experiences with centering prayer. I'm not saying I'm I incline this way, but I've had good experiences and yet I don't have an, an ongoing practice of it. So I don't know why not. Maybe I'm just not very disciplined. I resonate with that. I don't have an ongoing practice <laughs> you know? right now. I, I blame it on my son, uh, but I also didn't, I had lapsed and not, didn't have one before he was born. So yeah, yeah. Uh, now it's yeah. true that having him has made me need one more. And I okay. have not figured out how to do that just because feeling more frazzled, feeling, you know, sort of uh, less in control of my own timeline and days and all that stuff that comes with yeah. parenting a, an infant. But, yeah, I, I, I talk a big con- contemplation game, but I don't, I don't do it all that often. I've just had it be transformative. And there's – I don't know. There's maybe a whole chapter of introspection <laughs> Yeah, for myself, yeah. kind of buried within that as to what that's about. Yeah, but so I had been doing this for a little while, a couple of years, and then I had a particular experience. I think it was probably five years ago, maybe four. I I know that I, I measure things on what house we lived in, so yeah. I know it was in this room in this house. So we moved here a little over five years ago, and I think it was about five years ago. I was reading a book called Beginning to Pray by Anthony Bloom who's actually a uh, Greek Orthodox or maybe Russian Orthodox priest. And he had this addendum, this appendix in his book, and it involved Mary. It was like a, I don't know if it was like a devotional, like a written out prayer. I can't remember. I should have, I should have picked it up and checked, but I had this kind of weird moment where I felt this like stirring of the spirit on, on Mary. And, uh, and so I, I had this kind of, I did this, I, I just was like, okay, God, I'll be open to this. And that was enough along with some other stuff for me to ask my friend, Mark, who had mentioned this priest that he worked with. Cause he taught, he does still teach at a, um, a Jesuit, uh, like college prep school. You know, he's a high school English teacher and they have a Jesuit on staff. And so we started hanging out with this guy, Father Paul. Paul Paul Fitterer, he's now retired. You know, he's he's in his 80s now. But when I met him, he was also in his 80s. I mean, he was like 81, 82, 83. And he was just we got to spend a little time on Father Paul here. He's such yeah. an important figure in this story for me. A few things about Paul the yeah. The main thing is just that he was an example 
And you find this sometimes. I, I have found it now in multiple priests and monks uh, and maybe a nun or two, but I, I haven't had as much interaction with nuns. N-U-N, not N-O-N-E-S. Mm. That they have turned themselves into the kind of person you would like to think is possible for you to become by that age. Yes. And and of course, I find this in, you know, married, older people as well. Uh, but by my experience, not as often in terms of the percentage. I, I, I do know a handful of older people who I very greatly admire and look up to. But Paul was just like totally that from the from the jump. So he was transgressive as far as uh, priests go. In his in his final homily, I went to his going away party at that Seattle prep, the the school where he worked, and he said, "I think that the church is finally ready for a couple of things here. I think it's ready for women priests. I think it's ready for priests to marry, like in the Orthodox and Episcopal Church, uh, and maybe one other thing." And I was like. Damn, how badass to go out on like, here are the reforms, you know, that this 1.3 billion person church needs. Yeah. He also told me, do not convert to avoid fundamentalists because he's <sighs> he's met some some recovering evangelicals in his days. Yeah. And he said, we've got them, too. Yeah. Uh, they don't they don't worship the Bible. They worship the Council of Trent, which is yeah. a little inside baseball for you. It's the you know, the masses in Latin. We're not caving to secular aesthetics and culture uh, kind of a thing. It's the old school, the old yep. school folks. Yep. And then crucially, he said, also, I'm worried. I, I don't want you converting if it will be bad for your marriage. And that ends up being kind of the reason that I don't pull the trigger. Hmm. Uh, I guess it's one of the it's it's the reason that I don't pull the trigger beyond the the, the Sunday where we're that we'll talk about where I almost did. Yeah, that so that was the first time when I when I first met him, he said that. And so he was not like trying to sell me, you know, he was yeah. not being a car salesman. He was like, uh, this is probably not for you, but let's keep hanging out because I like you. And so <laughs> and so we did. And so Mark and I would hang out with Paul regularly. And eventually we had hit Mark's wife joined us and we did kind of a half ass version of the Ignatian exercises. But we still had a great time and we met sort of monthly in this little chapel. And it was, you know, he was just like, he was such a, I don't know, such an important presence mm -hmm. in my life and, and gave me such a, a vision of what not just a Catholic, but a Christian can be yeah. someone who's truly devoted to the way of Jesus mm. uh, and just continues to be really, really important. And so that's awesome. And then let's pause there. You are, contemplating conversion like your experiences your readings your prayer your beauty your masses all this is accumulated to the point of whoa i i think i might i th i think i might want to be this and and then father paul being like a wonderful role model of older guy and christian and peaceful and so I just wanted to acknowledge that, that all this has kind of accumulated to a point of readiness. And so, yeah. so then what happened? Yeah. So it gets a little stronger then because he recommends this book called Catholicism. <laughs> That's okay. not very helpful. 
Let me let me see if I can track it down who the author is. It is by Richard P. McBrien. Okay. And it's like a gosh, it's probably six, seven hundred pages. You don't have to read the whole thing. It, it's it's more of a reference than it is, you know, a yeah. book to be read straight through. Yeah. But this guy, a lot of more traditional Catholics don't like this guy. He's a bit more of a liberal Catholic, and it's this incredible book where he describes sort of like every possible doctrinal issue from a Catholic perspective, a Protestant perspective, compare and contrast how they read these passages, how they think about Augustine or Aquinas, what they do with Eucharist. Uh, oh. He gets into homosexuality, he gets on some of these divorce, you know, some of these hot button issues. And he just had a very refreshing perspective. And I was like, oh, this is the kind of Catholic I would be if I joined. And it was like very theologically interesting when when he presented the broad strokes of disagreement on some of these things. I often found the Catholic perspective more satisfactory. I wonder I wonder if I that may have changed in the last five years or so. Um, especially as I've moved kind of more towards process theology, although I guess probably not because a lot of process thinkers, a lot of the people I really like are Catholics. Mm. So there is a wing. Uh, and of course, Tehard de Chardin yep. was Jesuit and he is uh, a big, important kind of step on the way to sort of process and open and relational yep. thinking. So yeah, I guess there's probably no, there's really no Catholic rub there. Yeah in terms of that direction. So that made me even more ready because I could sort of get my mind around it. Like, oh, this is the type of Catholic I would be. And I started kind of thinking that way, like, okay. And I, I would, I'm a, I'm a big, like, I need to verbally process things with yep. a bunch of people I trust over time. Yeah. So I started kind of talking as if I was going to become a Catholic at this point. And I was, I was really feeling it part of the drive. And so then Paul asks, why do you want to do it? And, and, and he asked us to, to pay attention when we were in mass to our desire to take the Eucharist. So I wasn't taking the Eucharist at this point. Okay. And to listen to that and see what we, what we found. And so I did that, started doing that. And I found that I really wanted to take it. I mean, I I felt this kind of stirring, this deep desire of like, to take part in this central, which I still then and now would say like I is a metaphor primarily. It's an enactment of the, the foundational claims of Christianity that, that God is with us in the flesh and that, that God suffers on our behalf and, and meets us in the material world. And we have this, we eat his, you know, we, 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 we take these elements as, you know, in remembrance of him, but specifically in remembrance of like, God is a God of self-sacrificial love. That's kind of, yeah. that's how I think of the Eucharist. That's the crux right, of it. Right. So I felt this desire to take it. Mm. And so I, I brought that back. But before I get into that, I want to know if, where, if that played a role in your conversion, that wanting the Eucharist. Yeah, Absolutely. I gosh, I'm trying to kind of summarize all the different motivations that went into my desire to convert. Um, And Eucharist was certainly a a huge part of it. Because like I said, what's happening there at the mass is for me was just extraordinarily beautiful. And then to receive 
the spiritual food, the 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 body and blood of Christ to participate in this this sacrament that has been going on for two thousand years and connects me more to Christ and to other Christians um, is powerful. And I I I often weep for it. To be honest, um, it's just more than I can I can bear sometimes. Yeah, it's it's huge. I, I I wanted to ask you though, and I don't want to sidetrack your thinking, but the the doctrines, because there are various Catholic doctrines that, for many Protestants, are kind of the deal killer: the uh, Mary and intercession of saints, the celibacy of priests, the refusal to ordain women. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but those are some big ones where people just say, I can't do it. What role did those doctrines play for you in uh, a for or against decision? Yeah, great question. That is the kind of thing that really hinged for me on this idea of, well, I'll be uh, like my phrase was, uh, I'll be a Vatican three Catholic uh, which is like, you know, I'll be waiting for the next council to like get more liberal. So in one sense, that's the simple answer is that I was just like, especially on the more social issue stuff, I would just be comfortable with, you know, advocating for change from within the umbrella and being that kind of fringe element. I remain very, I think very highly of the role of institutions in human life mm. And I believe in changing them from within. And so I would have been that that would have been like the shortcut answer would just be like, well, yeah, sure. I'll just be one of those Catholics and and uh, I'll just I'll just disagree with these things. But that wouldn't keep me from participating. And frankly, if I had become one or if I ever do become one, I'm, I'm still comfortable with that. I don't I think that's a fine yeah. way to be. And I think if you actually Protestants are far less doctrinally aligned with the people in their pews together than they think they are. Mm. If when you actually mm. scratch and you can ask any Protestant pastor this and they'll be like, what do my congregants actually believe about X, Y, or Z? You know, there's not nearly as much conformity as we think. Yeah. And yeah. so, so I'm fine with that. Uh, I do really, yeah. I, I, I think now in, in not becoming one, some of those actually loom a little larger in terms of like, yeah, especially celibacy and non-ordination of women. After the abuse crisis, it's just like this, you know, I don't think that celibacy, my, my take is not that celibacy causes abuse, but rather that it makes conditions that attract certain kind of people to the priesthood, obviously not most of them, uh, but in an, in unacceptably high numbers, basically a kind of kind of weirdos who feel like they can, they have some way that they can make that work. But I don't, I don't want to litigate that issue too much because I don't feel like it's really mine to litigate, particularly as a non-Catholic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Mary intercession of the saints. So I, I don't know what to think about Mary. I definitely don't think that Mary was a virgin. I don't believe, I think I don't believe in the virgin birth and don't really care if it's true, it doesn't really, it doesn't have much theological meaning for me. Um, yeah. But I definitely don't believe that Mary was without sin. I just don't see, that seems really tied into the sort of 
sex and mm. like original sin, that particular view of Augustine of like, right, right. You know, so she, if she was sinful, then Jesus would be like, that's so fa- That's so obviously false to me. So, but yeah. that, but those are not like, I don't, I don't need to believe them. I could still go to mass. Like it, I bet a ton yeah. of people don't believe those things. A ton of Catholics. Yeah. So that's kind yeah. of where I land on some of that stuff where, yeah, I don't agree. Yeah. The, the celibacy and not ordaining of women stuff is, you know, I don't have any daughters currently and we're unlikely to have a daughter unless we adopt because of our, what we know about our remaining IVF embryo is male. And so, but that would be, especially with daughters, that would be a real, that would be something to really consider. And I'm, I'm far yeah. more drawn to Episcopalianism, for instance, on that, on that, res- yeah. in that respect. Yeah. What about you? Um, great question. First of all, the logic, logical theology, the abstract uh, philosophical theology, arguments for and against were really not factors in my decision to convert. Yeah. And the various deal killer doctrine, so-called deal, deal killer doctrines, those were really not problems for me either. I wasn't discerning the priesthood. I was alone. You know, I, I didn't have a spouse to consider at the time. So I, I, you know, these questions come up, like, what's the biblical justification for these doctrines? And I'm just, I'll be honest, and I hate to disappoint, but I'm just not there. I just, uh, it's just not been a, I don't feel a need to defend various Catholic doctrines, because it's really not central to my faith. Mary, I will tell you this, I never had a problem with Mary growing up. I was, like I said, kind of curious, and and I did have some good role models that were catalysts. In Portland, Oregon, there's this place called the Grotto, and it's this kind of natural garden place. I think it's, um, it's maintained by an order. I forget the order of monks and it's it's shrine to mary and so you kind of make your way through this natural garden and there are these various multi-ethnic shrines to our lady and so you know early in my conversion and i'm just kind of open to everything and i i go here and i think all right mary if you're there I, I'm open, like, help me understand, help me understand. And so I'm walking around kind of taking in these statues and, and really kind of thinking, what must it be like to be Mary? And, and it occurs to me, empathy, because the Marian rosary, the traditional rosary is moments in the life of Jesus through the eyes of his mother. And so I know what it feels like to have a son and to cherish that son. I have empathy for their mother. I cannot imagine the emotions, the depth, the dedication, the devotion, the fear that that went into that Mary experienced in raising this extraordinarily special son. And so that to me, like as a father kind of opens up a whole new way of loving Jesus, like, like a son, really. Why? Because I have sons and they're the most precious thing in the world to me. They broke into my life. They were grace that broke into my life 
And it, it, I've often wondered if they came so suddenly um, that, that they had to for me to pay attention to them because I was so wrapped up in other things mm. and distracted and just not where I needed to be um, as a man, as a husband. And they broke into my world. They were a grace from God that just broke into my world. And so it, it really, that's kind of how I approach Mary. If you were kind of as an aunt. I say the Aunt Mary, say the rosary, which never fails to calm me. Mm. I love the rosary. Do I do it every day? No. <laughs> so yeah, wow, that's like yeah, a great it, that's a great advertisement, man. I I'm really yeah. I'm drawn to that. I do think that there's some aspect of Mary that seems to work for people, like just from a completely detached yeah. anthropological perspective. Right. And and you just have Mary popping up in all these ways because it works. Maybe it's just a little more yeah. easy to relate to, you know, and, and yeah. that's probably good. I don't like I don't have a theological issue with that because right. I don't I no longer believe that like, well, what I'm doing in my in my Christianity is I have accurately pegged the God of the universe and this other claim <laughs> yeah. is wrong because it contradicts the accurate depiction I have of the God of the universe. Like I don't, that's not how I think yeah, of it anymore. Right, right. And so those are not right. nearly deal breakers anymore. Right. Cause I, I just hold it all yeah, a lot more right. loosely. And so to me, yeah. if I had an experience like that, that would be sufficient. This works. This yeah. is, this is, and man, if it brought Soren in, in any kind of concrete way, then, then it'll sell me too, because that is a, you know, he is a, a whole different way. Having him is a whole different way of thinking about life um, and value and all that stuff. So yeah. that's really, that's a very cool story, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it, saints, um, you know, it's love. I, I just view, view it as love. These are brothers and sisters who have passed on and Christ conquered death so that the love that we once had need not be defeated by death and that I, I can say prayers for, for those who have passed on and that they hopefully can, can help me here. So, yeah, so yeah I, I haven't I, thought about that one ahead. very much. I suppose I could, I should think about it some, I didn't have a particular problem with it one way or the other. Mm. I guess I do believe that God can, sort of influence my thoughts or, you know, nudge me one way or the other. And I, I guess I'm, I'm always skeptical of the more we anthropomorphize that, that experience, yeah. the more skeptical I am. So could it be that all of the things that I think are the saints is just God? Okay. In which case, is that really a problem? Not really. Like, you know, not, not like a big issue, uh, even if that were yeah. to be true. So, but I haven't, I wanted to ask you about um, remarriage, though, because so now you are yeah. remarried, and that right. that can be kind of weird in Catholicism. From the little I understand, was that an mm. impediment? Did that come later? Has that been frustrating? Wow, a great question. Um, so when I when I was confirmed, by that time I had met my second wife, my current wife, through eHarmony. We're similar in age. She's not Catholic. And so I was in the process of doing RCIA and converting and, you know, we kind of, we had kind of a, a, a conversation together as a couple of, 
she had some concerns. You know, you're joining this faith tradition that, you know, has some positions on things that I'm just not there. And and I remember reassuring her that, yeah, my my church does not affirm, but I do. And I've had some experiences that give me pretty strong conviction viscerally, emotionally on this issue that I, I don't care <laughs> what the church right. says. I, this is how I feel um, toward toward uh, people. Um, so I, the first thing that I start, started work on once, um, once I got the chrism oil um, was my annulment. Mm. And that was painful. And it was organized. It's um, an expectation. If you've been married first, the church views your first marriage as a sacramental marriage until evidence is brought forth that some condition was not met for it being a sacramental marriage. And so in the church's eyes, I was still married to my first wife for theological reasons. And, And I can respect that. I can. So I got to work on the annulment, and for me, it was an extended uh, confession, really, um, of at least my part of how I failed. It took a very long time for the tribunal to render its decision, and this was with the shortened version, courtesy of Pope Francis. Um, I know it's been a horribly long and expensive process for others before me. They rendered their decision, I guess it was April of last year, and they said, whoa, son, what we read in here concerns us. You need some help. And so they said, before we greenlight you for a mar- another marriage in the church, you need to get some help. So go get, go see a therapist and work with your parish, your local parish deacon um, or whoever prepares you for for marriage. And so I did. And I love therapy. I, I'm not yeah. anti-therapy. I'm, I'm all about therapy and doing the work, sometimes painful work of figuring out why do I have these distractions and addictions and why am I so easily triggered by my wife doing this? And oh, yes, it reminds me of my mother doing something. And so things like that, my own journey of recovery and mental health is kind of interwoven with my faith coming into the church and it basically saying, you need some help before we green, green light you for a marriage. Now, to Many Protestants, that may seem like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine a church having the authority yeah. to tell me what to do like that. Yeah. And I is as hum- humbling. I don't want to say humiliating, but as humbling as that was, that's what I signed on for. Um, and I, I, one thing I wanted to say about the decision to convert is I was well aware of the faults and limitations of this church. And, and I was well aware of my own faults and limitations. So the whole metaphor field hospital, the church was a field hospital for me. Um, It was a hospital for sinners, not necessarily a hotel for saints. And so that um, was what church was for me. Um, And so I was willing to, to join this church and share in whatever comes with calling myself Catholic 
knowing that only 2% of people do this. This is not normal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I went through the annulment process. I, I got therapy. I got involved in 12-step recovery, and it is the, has been wonderful. I have seen miraculous recovery, and in the process, just experienced a whole new kind of love, of mercy and compassion and a, a, a life apart from shame. I am so done with shame. So it's just, it's been wonderful. Wow. And so now I, I, we, we want to get our marriage convalidated by the church, which is the official right whereby the church says, yes, you are, we celebrate your marriage. We celebrate this sacramental marriage and, you know, wish you the best of luck in your salvation together, working it out together. So whenever COVID is right, done, right. we can gather in a church again. We're going to do that. That's cool, man. I mean, that's that's an example of like how that stuff can really work at its best. You know, it's yeah. it sounds like for you. Yeah. From I think where I'm coming from is I, I think I I think I take the David Bentley Hart line that annulment is like largely one giant you know motivated reasoning for Catholics. It's it's like a it's like a loophole out of a stupid doctrine that they should abandon kind of a thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, both of those can be true, you know, like it yeah. it can be that. And also yeah. it can provide for some people, maybe for very many people, some kind of uh, structure around which their life will will greatly improve as it did for you. And I, yeah. I can hold both of those at the same time, you know, for sure. Yeah. But that stuff is yeah. harder for me that I'm, you know, it was going to be hard. The submission part was always going to be rough for my personality yeah. type, you know, <laughs> let's take a, let's take a little break. And when we come back, I'll finish the, the Eucharist story and we'll, yeah. and we'll yeah, get further it. into the, uh, the near conversion. Okay, cool. So not because of any planning on my part, but it has just turned out to apparently be self-disclosure week here at the You Have Permission podcast, because this week's patron-exclusive episode is a Q&A episode where our editor, Josh Gilbert, interviewed me, and uh, we talked back and forth about a bunch of questions that the patrons and listeners of this show had for me. So... If you are a patron, look forward to that uh, coming in the next couple days here. And if you're not and would like to listen to that, you can become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Cope. There's a link in the show notes. It's $5 a month, but there is a sliding scale and you can email me if that's something that you're interested in. But becoming a patron also gives you access to the patron-only Facebook group for listeners of the show, which is a fantastic growing community. So if you're interested in that, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, and let's get back to the episode. So one of the things that came up for Paul and I, when he was kind of devil's advocating me, like, okay, I, you know, I don't, I still don't know that you should actually convert, uh, especially because your wife is not super keen on it. And she has never been super keen on it. She's a very she's less institutionally minded than I am, but more so I think just really loves things to be kind of equal and done together. And so she is mm. very she's fundamentally uncomfortable with like 
oh, Dan's a Catholic and I'm not. And that that is some, you know, some kind of difference of, of like what we can do spiritually or, or whatever our identities. Um, yep. And for instance, she's such a rule follower that she would never take the Eucharist in Catholic mass if, if she quote, wasn't supposed to. Whereas as we will hear, I'm not so worried about that. And he and Paul knew this. And so he was like, I don't, you know, it's not like whatever you got to do, like it's not worth messing with your marriage for it. And so he's like, and I was like, well, one of the things is I really want to take the Eucharist. I really enjoy this mass experience and I feel really called to it, you know, as you had us check out. He said, so take it. (laughs) And I was like, what? Aren't we not allowed to? And he's like, what does allowed to mean? He's like, look, I'm a priest. Do you think that there is a real presence going on in the Eucharist, that it is not merely symbolic? And I answered yes, and I would still answer yes. Doing something, being something kind of like a panentheist, which is basically where I lean, that like every part of the universe is within God, but God is also more than the universe, gives a nice sort of, it's a back alley way of saying that there's real presence in the Eucharist because there is real presence everywhere. But also it's the one, it's like the main thing instituted by Jesus himself before his death. And so I'm comfortable giving it like pride of place. And, and yeah, I, I, I've had enough experiences with it, especially since then, since I started taking it to just feel like, yeah, something goes on here. I, you know, I have, I'm very open to various ways of explaining that or describing that rather, but something's going on. And so he's like, okay. He's like, well, you have my blessing. Take it. I don't think you should become a Catholic just so you can take the Eucharist and potentially harm your marriage in the process. And I was like, mm. are you sure? He's like, well, you know, take it to God. But yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, you can do it. So then maybe within a month or so, we are at a Good Friday service at the uh, St. James Cathedral downtown. And I decide to use this as a trial run. So I am praying I am praying as the service goes on, you know, God, like, let me know. I would really like to take it. Paul says it's okay. I know it's against kind of the official rules. And I felt like a real sense of peace of like, yeah, yeah, man, get up here. Take this body of mine. So I started taking it and I had, you know, had a good experience. Uh, First of all, do you have any questions before I I tell the next part of the story? Because I'm kind of wondering what you're thinking, frankly, because Catholics – some of them, like I have Catholic friends who do not like that I take the Eucharist one bit. Oh, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm with you 100%. I am, I am curious if you're allowed to say sort of what was your, your kind of conversation co-discernment with uh, Jaffrey um, and kind of her reservations. Because I think that's critical. I'm increasingly believing that the marriage is kind of the fundamental element, church element. Mm. Um, And so my, my wife, it's critical for her that we receive together. And I, Mm. I want us to have that experience together and we, we do receive together. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, back to you. Wait, so she did become a Catholic because she wasn't a Catholic when you met. Uh, no, she's not Catholic. Oh, and, and she takes it too. Yeah. Yep. All right. Yep. Co-conspirators. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, 
we don't go to mass together very often at all. When I when I go to mass, it's usually either by myself. That's more on a weekday, and if it's on a Sunday, I usually go with with my friends Mark and Mary, who were the ones that we were meeting with Paul together. So that's not an issue in the moment. Uh, we do take it together mm. when we go to church together. We we have not. We left our church two years ago, and then COVID, you know, added nine more months. Uh, you know, delayed the church search, which was already delayed due to pregnancy and just kind of needing a break. Yeah, yeah. But we, when we are at a church, a non-Catholic church, we do take it together. Um, and yeah, I do think that's really important to her. It's definitely important to me. And so I don't, I wouldn't like that either. That she would, but I don't think she would feel comfortable unless she jumped through the hoops. And she didn't even want to become members at our Presbyterian church that we were at for 10 years. We never became members. And I was willing to become one. And she just doesn't like. So so if she listens to this, which she probably won't, she might because of the topic. When she, when she hears the story of the church and your annulment, she will f***ing hate that part. She will hate the part that they had anything. You know, she's just like very skeptical of. She's very low church in that sense, actually. She mm. just doesn't like. She doesn't really like pomp and circumstance, although we both do mm-hmm. like liturgy, but she doesn't like the vestments, mm-hmm. the robes they wear. Yeah. Like she just – she's just allergic yeah. to that stuff. And so it's just a personality thing. So she was kind of like, I don't know about you becoming Catholic. Like she never – she supported my time with Father Paul always. It was abundantly clear that that was a good thing for me. And she knew he when when she met him – he said very quickly on, he's like, I'm telling him that he maybe shouldn't do it because of you. And so she liked that and she felt seen by him. Again, he was just like so wise in all of this stuff. Still is. Nice. So yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So then I start taking it and I'm looking mm-hmm. for a local parish that I can go to for weekday mass. And the closest one, it happens to be this one up the road. And uh, I do a dumb thing, which is I stay after and chat with the priest one day. There's not that many people that go to weekday morning mass, you know. And I tell him, you know, I, I take I, – I he's like, so when did you become a Catholic or whatever? And I was like – because he saw me take it because there's 20 people there. I'm not a Catholic. I, I've been spending this time with this Jesuit. And he's like, oh, and I was like, he, you know, he told me I could take the Eucharist. I, I did a discernment process. And so I take it. And his response was, oh, no, I, you know, I don't think you should do that. Like, it's going to have the opposite effect on you. And I, I sort of like got out of that conversation quickly. And I was like, it's magic bread. Like, it's, it's either blessed or cursed. If you take it in the, you know what I mean? Like, is that what it is? Yeah. That seems insane to me. Um, yeah. Please respond. <laughs> yeah. So there are – there's sort of a spectrum sure. of orthodoxy and views on the subject. I assume that his and, view is not like the only uh, proper yeah, view or something. Yeah. Um, my understanding – and I, I have a whole list of caveats being you know, convert and um, – read selectively and in fragmented fashion. My understanding is that when we receive this blessed sacrament, it is on the premise that we are in full communion with the church 
that is providing us this blessed sacrament that we cannot get by any other church. So it's com- communion by virtue of communion with the church. And so I don't think that's giving full justice to to the, the theology of it or the yeah. ecclesiology yeah. of it, which I, I, I respect. I, um, I want to be really clear. I don't, I didn't want to exchange one fundamentalism for another. Right. So I'm, I'm open to hearing arguments and um, appreciating them. Yeah. But, and I've also heard that when we receive unworthily that yes, it can have the opposite effect and yes, it sounds kind of weird and spooky and magical or cursy, voodoo-y or something, yeah. that that if you receive the Blessed Sacrament in a state of mortal sin or lack of full communion with the church, then you're really kind of inviting, I don't know, uh, taking a risk, I should say, is probably sure. an accurate, safe way of saying it. Um, well, you obviously don't. You don't mind that your yeah. wife takes it, so you're not, you know what I mean? You don't uh, yeah. buy that. I can't square right. it with Jesus on earth, hanging out with, like, every I kind know. of sinner. Like, the idea, right. to me, it comes down to similar reasoning along a lot of the a lot of the atonement theories yep. that, that are like, you know, God's holiness can't be in the presence of sin or whatever. And then I just go, well, then right. how did Jesus do anything? You know, like, so that just seems like, I don't, it seems like scholastic theology based on Greek Mm -hmm. philosophy that made a lot Mm -hmm. of sense in the 13th century or whatever, (laughs) and doesn't make sense anymore. You know, that's how I think of it. But yeah, I could be wrong, but it would just be weird that I would have all these really blessed spiritual experiences with the Eucharist. I would have to believe that that's in fact, Satan you know, pretending to be Jesus or, and it's like, okay, at that point, I'm, I'm right. just going to leave that alone. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally am with you. I, have you seen the two popes? I did. I, I liked that, it. Yeah. Yeah. So medicine for the soul. That's kind of how I look at it. And I'm very suspicious of, or I don't like the whole notion of denying Eucharist to a publicly denying Eucharist to a Catholic. I mean, it, it that kind of takes on this guard dog approach, which yeah. I, yeah. I don't, and, I don't and like frankly that. veers very quickly into religious <laughs> abuse. Yeah, it, it can. Yeah. I mean, all it takes is one priest or Bishop or Archbishop or Pope or anybody who's got a vendetta or some negative thing against someone. And now all of a sudden they can, I've got this bludgeon of God against you. You can't get life-saving sacraments, you know, or whatever. And it's like, right. man, right. that God's not like that. <laughs> yeah, right. God is like the father and the prodigal son. So, yeah. okay. So that's interesting. So I started taking it and that honestly relieved a lot of the pressure for me. That mm-hmm. was a big thing. I wanted to be able to, participate in mass fully in terms of also, you know, taking the Eucharist at the end of the service, which is focused on the Eucharist. And then I was able to see more clearly than I could then that I shouldn't, I shouldn't actually convert, but let's tell the story of how I almost did. So I believe it's Easter 2016. It might've been 2017. We were set. So the one thing that Mark and I were both going to join my buddy and I, and both of us did not want to go through RCIA, the like year long 
thing that you yep. did. And apparently, yep. if you get a a priest to directly, con, you know, do the thing, you don't. You can. There's a workaround. It's a as Mark called it, the fast track. So we were hmm. gonna do that, and uh, and Paul said, Paul was fine with that because he was like, you guys both know more than almost anybody coming out of RCIA knows. You know, both amateur theologians and read a bunch of, you know, you can, I can give you a few articles and you'll be good. So we were going to do an Easter Sunday and Paul texted us and he said, the priest who was supposed to deliver, I, I believe that something happened to whoever was going to give the mass to this nunnery, like an hour east of the mm. city um, out in, I think, Carnation or something. Uh, he's like, I have to go do it. I mean, it's like literally my job. I must go give these nuns mass on Easter. I can't confirm you. Because um, there was a service. Maybe there was going to be one at the school. I'm not sure where he was going to be able to do it. And we were just going to be able to go. And we were going to get like kind of, you know, brought in through the side door. He's like, I'm not doing that service anymore. I have to do this one instead. And so I can't do it. And that. I mean, that's really what happened is I, it probably still would have happened. I was not I was not absorbing his admonition not to join yet mm. at that point. I was I was going to do okay. it. Yeah. And so I'm I think I'm grateful. And, and, you know, the Catholic Church may still be in my future. I wouldn't I definitely don't put that off the table. But mm. and especially having this conversation with you kind of brings it back into focus a little bit, if I'm honest, <laughs> especially some of that aesthetic stuff. But. That's how it that's how I have narrowly avoided it happening or whatever. And then a year later, I was at this uh, monastery uh, called New Camaldoli in Big Sur, California. And okay. I met with uh, Thomas Mattis, who is uh, a monk there. Incredible man. Since have read a book of his and just I'm very grateful to have been able to hang out with him for an hour. And he, I, I explained the situation to him and he also was like, yeah, maybe don't convert. And his reason was a little different, although he did, he agreed with Paul about my wife. I think at this one, I was like, well, maybe I'll still do it just because I couldn't do it that Easter Sunday. Maybe we'll find another time. And he was like, you know, the kind of work I was described to him, I was working on the podcast. I think I was probably doing reconstruct at this point and hadn't started you have permission, but it was like the ideas were there. And I knew that I would continue to do some sort of theology podcasting. And he said, you know, you might actually reach a lot fewer of the kind of people that you're well suited to reach if you're Catholic. I mm. think that that was probably maybe truer at the very beginning of this podcast and maybe truer for Reconstruct when there was a bit more of like a, I don't know, it was a bit more open to conservative audiences. I think mm. now where the show has come and where I have come, I don't think really anybody would find that to be a stumbling block. But at the time, mm. I think that that was, there was some wisdom in that. Um, and mm. that anyway, that just confirmed it. He also didn't care that I took the Eucharist. I took it right in front of him there at the monastery. And he was like, we, and, and this is the cool thing about orders, full circle to orders mm. within the Catholic church. That monastery yeah. just has an open table. They just offer it to anybody who comes there. And it's like, you know, I dare you to come stop us. <laughs> These monks, out on a mountain, you know, overlooking the ocean, come stop yeah. us from giving the Eucharist to whoever wants it, you know? Right. And I right. love that about these kind of rebellious 
segments of the church. I, I, I really do resonate with the orders in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Just brief. I'll just share my, yeah. my experience with the Benedictines shortly after I converted, I wanted to do a retreat experience and I had heard really good things about a Benedictine monastery in Oregon called Mount Angel. And so I got started looking online. It's a long way down there. It would have uh, t- taken a lot of time and driving to get there. And, I, and I'll still get there someday. But there's a closer one here. It's at, it's St. Martin's Abbey in Lacey. I make contact with their uh, guest master. And the Benedictines have this guest house and they have their abbey. And it's on a college campus. And that's kind of their, their charism is education. And the the kind of the motto of the Benedictines is ora e labora, work and prayer. I might have mixed those up, but they say the hours. They meet at least three times in the day to say the prayers. Uh, They gather in the church and of course they're wearing the black habit. They look like Darth Vader, the ancient Benedictine habit. And they allow guests to come pray with them and eat with them in the, the, food area um so i'm i'm here i'm praying with the monks and they do kind of their they take turns call in response praying they pause at the end and they say it with a certain cadence that is really calming and i just love it and so i'm just really loving these guys and just kind of wondering man what did i miss my calling should i have uh, discerned religious life oh gosh i've thought that every time i've been at a monastery <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm just like fascinated with these what must it be like to live a life of prayer like three or four or five times a day yeah and that's like the architecture of your day yeah and really, what more is there to do in your life than pray and do your work? Um, so I'm just like wondering about this. And I'm reading, on, sitting in the guest house, reading this uh, magazine. They did an expose article on the, the monks feature. And it said, one of the monks says, this is where I came to work on my salvation. And I thought, huh, hmm. I've never really heard it put that way. I always thought... You get saved, right? Good evangelical right. boy. You say your sinner's prayer and you get saved. And but do you work on it? That's kind of funny. So I was kind of mulling that around in my mind. And then I thought, well, where have I gone to work on my salvation? I I can't do this now because I'm married. So in a sense, I've already chosen my vocation. And then I thought, well, and I guess this is it. I will bloom where I'm planted. This is where I work out my salvation with fear and trembling is in the context of marriage and being the best husband I can be and being the best father, the best son, um, ex-husband. So it not exactly an earth shattering revelation, but no, for me, good. it was like an epiphany, like, whoa, yeah. here I'm kind of envious of these monks, but then I thought, well, you know, I've got my own path. I'll just go that path and I'll come do retreats with the monks. So, yeah, that's great. That's a great story. I need to try, I need to try that monastery. I went, I know I'm aware of that one. I balked because it was on a college campus and I thought it might not be very quiet. 
it is. It's quite it enough. It is quite okay. It's on. It's on a corner, and there's the guest house, and then there's the church, and yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So I I went up to one in British Columbia that was about a two hour drive, and uh, I I liked some things about it. Of gorgeous, gorgeous little chapel where the services yeah. are, but during the meals, they were. I guess some of these orders do a thing where they'll read like old, not sacred texts. I don't know what to call them, mm. but like old texts of their order. And the one they were yep. reading that time I happened to be there, which was not good timing. Was this like racist as shit account of missionary work among aboriginals in Australia or something? And it was like, really bad jack it was bad it, oh. was, it was so cringy and all this stuff about their lower natures you know, i was just like what the f-? and and i asked somebody it's like look these are the things we read it's part of our history and i was like yeah. i think i'm out on this man and there was <laughs> yeah. no interaction with the guests really and and it was just like i don't know it, it felt kind of cold to me that's some of that's yeah. just personality, whatever. I'm, I'm not judging them. I just, I was like, okay, well, this place is easy to get to, but probably not for me. So maybe the, yeah. maybe the lacy one could work out. St. Martin's. And I think it varies by monastery. I've heard they're more strict up in BC okay. and it varies by the abbot and how loose they want to right. be. Like I've, we've dined together and we've, we've talked and they'll listen to an audio book together. They dine in silence. And yes. then at the end they'll read from the rule of Benedict, which I think is genius. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of scary, but this thing is 1500 years old. These folks have survived. There's something they're doing that totally. works. And so I've, I have a book or two on Benedictine stuff and it is fascinating. It must really depend on the abbot because I've also uh, spent time yeah. at the Eastern Orthodox monastery on Vashon Island here. And that was a very weird experience where they like invited me to stay. We like drank scotch in the library and the nice. abbot was just like arguing for orthodoxy over Catholicism. And it wow. was, and but he was also making some weird arguments about like how orthodoxy was going to succeed because of how masculine, uh, you know, the every men have beards and and the church has become too effeminate, and it was, it was a weird night, a fun night. That is weird. Uh, they <laughs> gave me a lot of really great whiskey, and um, <laughs> this was on like a solo retreat that I was on it at a friend's cabin okay. on on Vashon, and I nice. went uh, to this mass. But but uh, so yeah, he he obviously had a lot of latitude there and uh, was quite gregarious. And Chris Hoke, who's been on this show, I think a couple times now, he was, or at least he was on the the Jean Vanier sexual hero, sexual predators episode. He goes right. there regularly, and and he and I have been meaning to go together, which we will eventually do at some point. But anyway, enough Pacific Northwest monastery talk. Not yeah, that you yeah. need to, of course, listeners, you don't, you can find monasteries near you, and I would highly right. recommend it. Uh, they're yeah. off; they're usually very inexpensive to stay at. They. It's yep. part of their whole ministry or their charism, yep. as you called it, to use the Catholic terminology, to like, especially Benedictine orders, like mm-hmm. to leave their doors open to visitors is a part of their whole deal. Mm-hmm. And it's really an experience. I would highly, highly recommend people do it. If you're in a stage in life where you can get away for a night or two. Yeah. Um, if I lived in California, I would go to New Camaldoli in Big Sur 
once or twice a year. Mm. That would be nice. That would be my yearly or twice yearly pilgrimage. I would become an oblate there, which is like a yep. a lay associate. You know, you're not a right. monk, but you you do some form of their prayer. I, I think yep. that's still in my future. I don't know if that's going to happen with young kids. I'm distracted enough already, yeah. and and Soren throws a big, beautiful wrench in all of that. So um, I'm getting I'm getting to the towards the end of my story, but but we'll leave some time uh, for some mm. of these. Actually, you know what we should probably do is just do the listener questions uh, later as a patron exclusive episode and give ourselves okay. more time. And we'll both answer them. And that way we won't rush them. So we'll just wrap sure. up my story here today for this episode. Okay. And that will be something bonus for for patrons of the show. So I was going almost weekly for a, for a couple years here um, before Soren was born to weekday morning mass I found out that on Fridays it was at 9 a.m., and that was a lot easier to make than the 8 a.m. Monday through Thursday at the local <laughs> parish because they would have the kids come on Friday and they would do more music, and it would be a little longer, which was actually kind of a bummer to me. But uh, you know, it'd still be like 35 minutes instead of 25 minutes, and you don't really want to go far from home if you're going to a 25-minute service. It's not really worth driving – for me downtown half an hour, you know, in the morning with a little traffic yep. to, to sit in St. James for 25 minutes and then drive back, you know, 20 minutes home against traffic. Right. So I found that that was, uh, that was working pretty well. But then once he was born, I mean, I don't think I've been a single time because mornings are, are either I'm watching him or it's my morning to catch up on sleep. And, and so that's just not really in the cards and he certainly can't go. He'd be too loud. Although yeah. that's something to think about when, when he's able to be more quiet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of – that's my mass uh, attendance has, has dipped quite a bit. And so my kind of regular interaction with the Catholic liturgy is lower. Uh, do, you, mm. do you go to weekday ever or are you just a Sunday guy? I Primarily Sunday now. For a while I worked um, – for the archdiocese for a little while, um, worked for the Catholic school's office. And that was right across the street from the cathedral. And so I was able to do daily weekday mass there. And it was, it was nice. It was 35 minutes. Yeah. Homilies were nice and short. It wasn't singing or anything. Um, so it was just a wonderful spiritual kickstart for the day. Uh, very calm and centering. Yeah. And some of their, their masses on special occasions are just out of this world. The Requiem Mass on All Souls Day is just out of this world. Um, I got to go – I went to St. James one morning when they were doing the confirmation of the children into yeah. the faith, their first communion. And right. so they had an all-children's choir for all the hymns and special music. And in that big stone cathedral – I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it – it was mm. so gorgeous. I like made voice recordings <laughs> to show to Jaffrey nice. later. Uh, and I just, I didn't know it was that. I just happened to go one Sunday and it was, that was what they were doing and stuff like that. And, and again, like the, um, the black Friday service to black Friday, oh my gosh, good Friday service. <laughs> uh, that was also like so solemn and dark and cool and beautiful. And yeah, uh, yeah I, they really Catholics just, Catholics just have Protestants. They just have our asses kicked on aesthetics <laughs> and beauty. And I mean, they're just wiping. It's beautiful. They're just wiping the five hundred year old stone floor with us. 
Um, <laughs> so I, the last chapter for me in this kind of Catholic saga has been, as I've looked more into this, the spiritual and religious abuse literature, and mm-hmm. I, I've rewatched Spotlight a couple times, the film, mm-hmm. mainly just because I love that movie. And I, I, um, I like to have movies on in the background when I'm getting kind of busy work done. And so that the sex abuse crisis, and of course, you know, we did an episode on it in the fall. I've had I've had to think about that some more, and that's a that's a really tough thing to think about. Mm. Um, and it and it it flares up my sort of suspicious of authority tendencies. You know, my I'm not really a rule follower. My my wife and I are opposite in that sense. I I do really love institutions and I value them, but I don't really like following rules. I feel like. I feel like rules are for less smart people than me and that I am (laughs) (laughs) and that I am able to discern what's behind the rule. And then I can, I can follow that. But the rule is dumb. Like I was for years, I was like, there is no way that my cell phone is messing with the airlines communication equipment. I am not turning (laughs) my cell phone off before a flight. Sure enough. They, they got rid of that one because it was stupid. And so – and they recognized that that was impossible. Yep. I'm like that guy yep. who was like not turning it off even when they said because I knew it didn't matter. Uh, and it was really more about getting us to pay attention. And I understood, yep. oh, OK, well, I've done this a bunch of times. I know that they're about to give the safety thing. I know how that goes. I don't have to pay attention. I don't need to follow yep. the rules. That's a perfect yep. little window into that aspect of my personality. Yep. So I I guess I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but like – what has the sex abuse crisis been to you as a Catholic? Uh, difficult. I mean, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to say I'm a part of this church right. that has committed that where this abuse has happened and that has covered it up. Yeah. In such a and so effectively covered it up and not been able to institute and reforms to prevent it from happening. That said, when I was working for the archdiocese, I did learn that, you know, they they do have new safety trainings. They have put in place measures to prevent priests from being alone with children um, or really anyone who works with children, that yeah. there's uh, much strict safety precautions in place. But yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough. I, I will say I I kind of I converted kind of after all that happened in Boston and with the whole Cardinal McCarrick story. Um, so it really was not a big part of my experience. Yeah. Um, and my children are, you know, they're Protestant and um, I, I just couldn't imagine it just was didn't resonate with my personal experience, but it was just, it's hard to be part of an organization where this has happened. That said, I, if this is part of what's imperfect about the church and that um, is an impediment for others was not for me. I, I've, I've been willing to join this church and, and just kind of said, Hey, if it's not going to get better, if people leave it Mm. and for everyone who joins it, like I do, there are six who leave, so, you know, I will, I'll join and I'll offer my life as to try to be a good Catholic and do, do what's right. Um, That's beautiful, man. I, I wanted to comment on the rules. There are lots of rules 
and <laughs> you can you wonder where they came from and what's behind them. I will say this: there, there's not there has for me at least there's not been a lot of finger wagging, a lot of accountability. There's been no test of authenticity where people say, "Do you do you venerate Mary?" Nobody has asked me that. Right. Nobody cares about my Marian devotion or lack thereof. You know, at Lent, there's the, you know, you give up meat for Lent, at least on Fridays, or you give something up for Lent, right. and there's various rules and things. And I, some of them, many of them, um, some fraction of them, I I kind of like that. I'm willing to oh, do that. I'm totally. willing to go along with this. 100%. If I know that there's some kind of spiritual discipline or, or betterness that comes from it. Yeah. So, I'm totally with you on that. I would, I would benefit from a bit more structure of the year stuff like, right. yeah, more emphasis on Lent. When I have been involved at a, at a Catholic parish during Lent, you know, there's, they're always talking about collections for the poor and sort of yep. doubling down on caring for the poor in a way that, you know, you know, I haven't seen as much in Protestant churches and that kind of cyclical stuff I I personally find very helpful. I I guess yeah. I haven't said this. I've maybe said it elsewhere at various points, but both my wife and I, we really like liturgical church partly because we are kind of ADD. I think she yeah. I think she actually probably could be diagnosed with ADHD. I don't think that I would meet criteria, but I, I do have a, a very fast moving and distractible brain, um, as you might be able to, uh, <laughs> ascertain if you listen to the show. <laughs> and, and so I like the structure and I also find the great beauty in, in words that have been kind of honed yeah. and, yes. and selected for almost Darwinian style over hundreds of years, <laughs> thousands of years sometimes. Right, right. Um, I like all of that stuff. And, and all of that is, is uh, it's all a plus for me, you know? Um, mm. And so I, I could definitely see a future where where uh, we end up Catholic, but I probably wouldn't do it unless Jaffrey wanted to do it. That's I think that's kind of where yeah. I end on it. And there's one other thing about the sex abuse crisis that I think complicates the picture. There are two things. One, we don't know the extent of it in Protestant churches. And right. many of them are very much not set up for that kind of thing. You know, there was a pretty big story about the Southern Baptist Convention. They do kind yep. of keep some records and that they had kind of a high number. And there's a lot of anecdotal stories of Protestant pastors just being moved away and rehired by other churches to get them out of the way, which yep. is just like a less organized version of what the Catholics right. would do, Right. Uh, right. put moving them to a different parish and and settling the mm. suits. And then finally, the the Boy Scouts revelation of just from earlier uh in 2020 that they are settling just a massive number of suits and to their credit they're doing it well. They are actually paying people and mm. they have a big fund and they're trying to do it well, but it will basically end that organization or extremely hobble it. And the numbers there are higher than the, the numbers that at least that have been brought to the church in the States. Now, I don't know exactly how much apples and oranges that is, but it's something like four or five times the number of cases. 
And so oh if gosh. you if you want to say, well, I don't need church, like I can get this in some other place, like the Boy Scouts. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, right? right? So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, there might be something baked into large organizations with mm. incentives and time with children that attract a certain kind of, you know, there there might be some kind of big ocean size factors at play that affect the Catholic church, just as they affect the boy scouts. That is more about human dynamics and, and psychology or something that just complicates the picture for me. Yeah. That's a weird place to end our conversation. Why don't let's not end it there. Why don't, so we got a bunch of really good questions from patrons. Let's pick one. You pick one. That would be a nice place to end. And then we will do a follow-up episode, Jack, where we talk through and both answer uh, the rest of these questions. Yep. All right. Here's one that I really liked. Healthy personal faith practice and proscribed ritual. Raised as an evangelical, the view of Catholicism was pretty negative. Here, I can relate to that. Right. Now, though, it feels to me that I would find a lot of comfort in meaningful, purposeful, and shared ritual in worship. In the modern Catholic Church, where do Catholic dogma and shared practice intersect? Oh, that's a great question. I think you have to start. Yeah. You you know how to answer that better than I do. So what yeah. what are what is the relationship there between like is shared practice like here would be my phrasing of the question for you: Is mm. shared practice a necessary part of dogma? Is dogma a necessary part of shared practice? Do they sort of operate parallel and not touch? All that often, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I'll just answer this in parts. Forgive me if it comes across a little fragmented. For a while, I was really kind of fascinated with dogma. Really just the notion that the church could claim this stuff is true. The audacity. We've decided <laughs> these things yeah. are true because we've said they're true. Right. Right. And so I thought, huh, well, we live in kind of an age when that's that seems like a pretty uh, big thing to say. A very countercultural thing to say, actually. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I said, well, let me see them. <laughs> so I, I found online some kind of uh, distillation of the dogmas and I went through them. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm OK with most of these and some of these I don't really understand and i maybe i would be on board if i did right um so i I just found it a little less uh scary and and foreign and and daunting and then i what kinds of things make the make the list of dogma because my understanding is that there's a difference between dogma and doctrine right right so like is something like the the immaculate conception that mary was born without sin and stayed sin. Is that a dogma or a doctrine? For it's instance? dogma now. Yes, that's okay, dogma. That was, from what I understand, that was made dogma by a pope speaking ex cathedra from the chair of Peter. Um, that it is infallible. Now that said, I know that must sound really, really wild yeah. to Protestant ears. Uh, my understanding is that when a when a pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair of Peter and proclaims something true infallibly, that it's not a surprise. It's something that right. the magisterium, the bishops have already, they've already been there. It's something that the church has already, at least at that level, has already believed, if not many of the laity as well. Yeah. Um, and so it's not such a surprise 
though, you know, from our side of the Tiber, I guess we go, oh my gosh, how's that possible that a Pope can... Father Paul would talk about this, and yeah. he said that in his, the way that he understood it, was that the, the proper way to understand papal infallibility is that it has to be spoken from the seat of Peter, mm. and it has to be received by the church. Now, I don't know... Right. I don't know where he got this, if this is a legal loophole in his mind or whatever, but he contended that the no birth control thing, which happened right after he became a priest okay, and really almost – he almost left the priesthood over it. Whoa. He was so upset by it. He said, you know what? I don't believe that that has actually been received by the church in the proper way. I think it has always been debated and it yeah. was spoken – sort of in haste. And so he didn't feel that he needed to hold to that. He didn't need to teach people that. Mm. I Again, this is one guy that I, right. and I liked that part of him, that rebellious <laughs> streak, of course. But there, there even is wiggle room there. This guy's a priest, yeah. you know, and this is what he's, this is his interpretation of it. And so I, th I thought that right. was interesting. Yeah. So to continue, and I'll try to put a bow on this. Yeah. There was a priest who said to me, Jack, everyone's a heretic somewhere. So I was like, yeah, that's that's true. The dogma stuff is interesting, and many, if much of it, I probably already agree with. And you're right, you know, so everyone's a heretic somewhere. Not to completely, you know, give me a blank check to be heretical, but just to know um, it's it's not going to be possible to be 100% orthodox if I even want to. Also, eventually things get added, and things do change over time. Right. And so if you you can play that out into the future and say some of the things that some people believe that don't line up today will eventually line up that, that, that this is sort of one of the features of having something like papal infallibility mm. is that like, at least in theory, the thing that you believe could end up being accepted doctrine yeah, or dogma down the road. And so you wouldn't, you would never want to say nobody should ever believe anything differently. Right. Or else there would never be anything to add. But clearly there have been things to add. Mm -hmm. So that's another way that I would think about that tension yeah. when I was thinking about joining. Yeah. So then there's there's discipline, there's doctrines like purgatory and things like that. And then there's disciplines like celibacy. So celibacy is merely a discipline of the church. I, it was instituted somewhere, I guess, in the Middle Ages. And I, th I think a lot mm. of it had to do with property and priests owning private property and wanting to keep property within the church, as well as basically marrying the church and freeing yourself to give your life to the church, which I, I get that. I respect that. I, I could, it, it'd be very hard for me to do that myself, but right. <laughs> I can. I well, can. what Paul would say, what Paul used to say was people who join the orders should be celibate. Like he was like, I'm a Jesuit. I would still be celibate. Okay. Like I, this wouldn't change for me, but a parish priest right. who is serving their neighborhood they don't need to be celibate. Yep. That doesn't make any sense. That's That was his perspective. Yep. And I, I like that as kind of a middle way. And it would also have probably the effect of building up the orders because mm. the people who did feel called to that kind of more extreme life, first of all, you'd get rid of your priest shortage in the parishes mm. and you would maybe even get more people into the orders. And I think the orders are such the lifeblood uh, they come up with – they're the laboratories of democracy, <laughs> laboratories of Catholic democracy, you know, where they try stuff out yeah. and more radically live the way of Jesus, you know, like Greg Boyle down in L.A. with Homeboy Industries. Right, you know, he's right. a 
Franciscan, I think, yeah. right? Uh, and and Richard Rohr, you know, so that right. kind of a thing. Like, I would love to see more. I would love that as a a solution. Yeah, where you can still do the celibacy thing. You join an order. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can. Like, really, what's the difference between a Catholic priest and an Episcopal priest in terms of mm. what they're able to do? For, you know, I there are differences. Mm. You probably have more time to work with the poor in your area. I mean, I know how much time it takes to be married and have a kid yep. and stuff. It it takes up time mm-hmm. for sure. But it's yeah, that's a complicated one. Yeah. And I guess the last part of it is I, I kind of distinguish, not too sharply, but Catholic church – like institutional church and the rules and living a Catholic life with Catholic faith, with devotions to Mary and the saints and a relationship with Jesus, a sense of the divine, um, living liturgically, attending mass, reading, those kinds of things, Uh, being a Catholic, living that way in community with others. I'm a huge Richard Rohr fan. Um, His work was really critical for me and helped catalyze my decision to join. But yeah, so I've just found my life, my faith as a Catholic is like the difference between black and white and technicolor as far as um, the richness, the fullness, the embracing of the physical prayer of the sign of the cross, the holy water, the sacramentality, participating in the sacraments as access to God's grace alongside or in addition to the scriptures. I am, there was a long, there was some point along the way where I stopped being sola scriptura, but now scripture is part of, but certainly not only the guide for the faith. So it's many Catholics still enjoy being Catholic and doing Catholic things with a Catholic sensibility of enchantment, even if they disagree with many of the positions of the institutional church or the magisterium. So totally, man. Well, that's, I think that's about as beautiful place to end as any. I don't really have anything to add on that question. You had a a much better beat on it than I do. And so we'll, we'll close there. Jack, thank you so much for this incredible conversation and I look forward to the uh, additional session for the patrons. Thank you, Dan. Thanks to Josh Gilbert, our editor for this episode today. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. You can email me about the sliding scale. My email is in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to sellyourdeconstructing.com, which are, you know, kind of deconstruction, faith deconstruction resources for people at various stages along that journey. And my Instagram and Twitter are also in the show notes if you would like to follow me there. Also, if you have a spouse that would like to join the Facebook discussion group and you are a patron, they can join and there should be a little option when they request to say my spouse is a patron. So go ahead and send that over if they want to be a part of it. And we'll see you guys next week.